I'd like to start by uh, doing a little delineating of our terms here um, and talking about the implications of the question, you know, the confluence of science and religion. Well, of course, the fact that the title is the confluence of science and religion implies that at some point there was a divergence of science and religion, otherwise they couldn't be flowing back together again. Um, this situation wouldn't or hasn't really arisen in the East where there is different there is a different emphasis of religion and a, a comparative absence until recent time of the impact of Western science. But interestingly, if you go back to the roots of um, Western science and religion, you find the quasi-mythological figure of Pythagoras. And I'd suggest that Pythagoras, in Pythagoras and his system, there was already this confluence of science and religion. Pythagoras was a mystic. He was a political activist. Um, he was a musician. He was a mathematician. Um, he's been described by Bertrand Russell as a mixture of Einstein and Mary Baker Eddy. <laughs> being a, um, a, a reconciliation of apparently irreconcilable opposites. So that if we go back to our roots, then there is this figure of Pythagoras, um, followed by Plato and so on, um, who were scientific mystics, if you like, or mystical scientists, and whose concerns were to do with harmony, order, beauty, mathematics, and so on. So we've got to ask, you know, what, in what respects are science and religion now flowing together? What is science? Well, I suggest that, broadly speaking, we can characterize science as a method or a philosophy, the scientific method we talk about. Uh, we can think of science in terms of its applications, which we see all around us. We're even sitting on some of the applications of science and our time, our time pieces, these sorts of things here. These are all applications of science. And we can think of science in terms of different disciplines, astronomy, biology, chemistry, and so on. All of these mean science. But <clears throat> what are the assumptions of science? What are the frameworks within which science operates? A, a lot of work has been done on this in the last 25 years, starting with a very famous book called The Structure of Scientific Revolutions by Thomas Kuhn, K-U-H-N. And it was he who pointed out um, that there were frameworks of thought within which science was pursued which altered uh, in the course of history. So that there wasn't just something you could call science. There were scientific worldviews within which science was pursued. Um, and you could think of, uh, a China, there could be a Chinese science or an Indian science. And there can be a medieval science and then there's a modern science, and there's perhaps even a post-modern science, um, which we are moving into at the moment. What about uh, the other term? What's religion? Um, it's terribly difficult to say. In the 19th century, um, it was agreed in the middle of the century to suspend all speculations about the origin of language, because there were so many fruitless arguments coming out, nobody could agree and some of them thought it was through grunts, and some of them thought it was through signs and things. Um, and the, the nature of religion is something on which um, few people would agree. If you ask, what is religion? Some people would say, um, well, um, religion to me is faith, uh, or it's a 
belief system or religion implies the existence of God or a system of worship um, a conception of the spirit there are all sorts of ways of defining religion do you for instance <coughs> define communism as a religion some people do some people say well it, it, it's, a, it's a belief system and it gives people a sense of purpose they're trying to bring about the communist millennium now, other people would say of course it's not a religion there's no God, you're not worshipping anything unless you're worshipping the uh, communist party uh, which you could, you could say that was the object of worship or um, the uh, figurehead of the communist party and there of course is no conception of spirit and so how can you call communism a religion? But there are, you could call it a religion but not everybody would call it a religion so what I'm saying is that there are different approaches and definitions to religion you could however think, I think say that there are two um, aspects, basic aspects of religion um, and the first is the personal side, the personal, the mystical, the inward side, the side of prayer um, and the side which is essentially solitary um, it concerns the individual's um, meditations, prayer, relationship with the divine and then secondly there is the social side of religion, the institutional side of religion um, the external side, the side concerned with, with ritual and, and worship so th these are two obvious ways of looking at religion, the personal and the social the next thing to ask is what kind of science and what kind of religion can be said to be flowing together the confluence of science and religion well is it all science, is it biology, is it physics is it all sorts of religion um, is there a, a flowing together of creationism um, with science obviously not um, in fact there are, some, uh, there are some sorts of science and some sorts of religion which are loggerheads with each other even now there are some, pe some people who are very committed to religion um, who think that science is uh, rather irrelevant and there are others who are very committed to science who feel that religion is quite superfluous and I, I shall investigate this as well because we can't talk about the science science and religion flowing together unless we define what it is about science what it is about religion which seems to be flowing together why, in what respect are they still apart and why we have to remember of course that it's human beings um, that are scientists and human beings who need religious views and so the human being is the confluence of science and religion or the, the, the mind of the human being or the heart of the human being so what I'm asking in the end are the trends and, and possibilities in this respect uh, I'm going to give quite a lot of background to my question because I always feel that whenever one's talking about something in the present here, here we are thinking about science and religion in 1987 you can't understand the context of the confluence uh, or the discussion even or the conversation unless you understand how it is that the present situation arose so there's, there's, a, there's a fair amount of background to fill in here well we know broadly speaking that science grew out of and from a reaction to Christianity and to official Christianity and to the Aristotelian view which I'll say something about in the middle 
so that this is an outcrop of what was a Christian civilization. It's a very important point, this, um, that science did not, as we know it, arise in a Buddhist culture. It arose in a Christian culture. And it retains some of the basic notions of the Christian way of looking at things. Uh, one of these is order. Um, we, the Christian view of the world, uh, the ancient old Christian view of the world, had this notion of order. God ordered the world. The creation was an ordering. And science is based on order. If, if, if there was disorder, complete disorder, nobody could make any predictions, nobody could describe any laws, and science itself would be a chaotic enterprise. It's also based on the premise that nature is intelligible, that it can actually be understood. Um, Christianity, traditional Christian metaphysics, had a scheme whereby the world was understood. It was understandable, so that the human mind is capable of grasping something about the world. And we have retained um, the notion of cause and effect. Um, without which uh, we can't get very far in any kind of analysis, although I shall modify that remark <coughs> later on. Now, what about the, what scheme was it against which science reacted? Um, well, it was a combination, really, of Christian doctrine, Aristotle, and on the biological and anatomical side, a man called Galen, who lived in the second century um, AD, who had an immense influence on anatomy and um, theories of health. Uh, it's staggering and pointed out in this, this very remarkable book, which was published in 1925 or 6, called Science, Religion and Reality, edited by Joseph Needham. Uh, it's Sheldon Press. You no doubt only find it in a second-hand bookshop now, and I have seen it in various second-hand bookshops. It's forwarded by A.J. Balfour, former Prime Minister who also gave the Gifford Lectures in um, the early part of the century. And points out that the, the Aristotelian view of the world really lasted from something like 350 BC to 1650 AD. Now just, if think about it, that's 2,000 years where the, the general scheme of the world was pretty much unchanged. And for us to think of that, that now is absolutely astonishing. We talk about second or third or fourth generation computers, and some things are, are changing so quickly that you can just about grasp the present before the next development comes in. And here we are talking about a scheme that remains static for 2,000 years. Since then, of course, it's been absolute ferment. Now, I'd like to characterize some of the aspects of this, this scheme. Um, the first is that, that God is responsible for creation, that, that creation is divine, and that God providentially looks after the world. There is a notion of providence, um, providence, if you like, providence. And that the, the, the account, broadly speaking, in Genesis is to be taken literally. Secondly, there was a supernatural order in which things were eternal, perfect, and unchanging. And this was to be contrasted sharply with the natural order in which things were imperfect, they weren't eternal, they were temporal, and they were changing. 
very important to grasp this profound split between the idea of what was heavenly, eternal, changeless and so on, and earthly, full of change, imperfection, flux. And when one, le- one set of laws applied to the heavens and another applied to the earth. So this is a form of dualism. Things, well, uh, the heavenly bodies uh, were considered to move in a circle because the circle was the most perfect shape. Not because they had been observed to move in a circle, but because things circular were equated symbolically with perfection. And as the sky and the, the heavenly bodies were aspects of perfection, they had to move in a circle whether they liked it or not. And we discovered they didn't later on. Thirdly, earth and man were at the centre of the universe. Earth is in the centre of the universe and you have a series of concentric spheres um, going out from the earth. So you had the sphere of the planets going out like that. And then right at the edge you had the crystalline sphere <coughs> where all the, you know, the stars, unchanging, were just distributed at an equal distance from the earth. Along a sort of flat continuum all the way around like that. It's very important to, to grasp the two-dimensional view of the stars, which, which we know, obviously, we, we may, our senses may take this in, but we don't um, subscribe to this intellectually. And the universe was made for man. The universe was finite. That's another important point. Finite universe. A universe made for man, man at the center, earth at the center. Very important. Everything at the center. We are absolutely the center. Things made for us. Very important too, the earth and life was considered as a sort of chain of being and everything was considered to be alive in the sense of the earth being an organism um, and the emphasis being on the philosophy of life. And this is, this is important because we're coming back to this with our discussion of Gaia later on. Um, it seems that we've done an excursus from 1650 to 1980 where we regarded nature as dead and mechanical and the idea of nature as alive is now coming back after much too long an absence. Fourthly, some people, and this slightly contradicts number three, uh, but still it, it was, it was a, an opinion held by many people, the earth was flat. Therefore there could be no such thing as the antipodes, because you couldn't possibly have people walking upside down well, firstly, they couldn't, they couldn't walk upside down. Uh, secondly, they, uh, there was no trace in the Bible of any preaching having happened in the Antipodes. And if no preaching had happened in the Antipodes, nobody in the Antipodes could be saved, um, and God would certainly have made, have, have made some provision for people in the Antipodes to be saved if there were any. They said there can't have been any, <laughs> because otherwise the Bible would have said there were some. <laughs> and the preachers would have gone there to preach the word and give them a chance to attain salvation. The other very important point was the second coming had to be seen by everybody, coming in clouds of glory. Um, And if the earth were not flat, it couldn't be seen by everybody. And especially it couldn't be seen by people at the Antipodes, (laughs) who were underneath, because you couldn't have... It couldn't be seen by by people on this side of the world. That's right. They said it, it, it could only be seen from uh, the idea of, it produces the idea of a Decker universe, doesn't it? Of, of, of the layer universe of uh, earth, hell, poetry, heaven, and so on and so on. 
so that uh, it, it was this, this, these were the sorts of argument that went on that and they do illustrate uh, the tendency of people to look for confirmation of what was told to them by the ancient authorities and I'll mention this more in a second fifthly going, back, going on to Galen Galen applied the idea of purpose to the design of the human body and so he explained the form and the structure of the human body by the purpose for which God made those elements or, or organs of the human body and this idea of purpose is absolutely central um, because um, it's one which collapsed and disappeared um, with the rise of the mechanical philosophy and I should, say, I should say a good deal more about that and this is one of the reasons why Galen's theories including a humoral theory of disease which I won't go into but the imbalance of the humors lasted so long because he said um, that um, the human body is obviously designed purposefully by God for the purposes which we use it for you can see that there's an element of circularity in the argument here um, then that um, we discern the purposes and then we decide that it was made for the purpose that we discern mm -hmm. um, this, this is ridiculed by Bertrand Russell when he says that a, 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 a shooter a, hunts, a huntsman could say that um, the reason for uh, rabbits having white tails was so he could see them more easily um, and he was then able to shoot the rabbit and I don't suppose the rabbit would agree with that analysis at all <laughs> if the rabbit did any analysis now what kind of science was done or what are the factors and contexts of science within that world view I was talking about science operating um, within particular parameters within particular world views and I've just given you a world view and um, what sort of science was being pursued within that well the main thing was the attempt to reconcile things that were seen with what ancient authorities said about it so that you would look out and you would observe something and you would say ah oh, yes that's the case uh, and that fits in with what Aristotle said or with what the Old Testament said so that you took the authority as given and then you found out the reasons why something happened you look backwards and what I think this is a, this is a, a feature of is the the idea or a general particular illustration of is the idea of the golden age being something that happened um, in the past um, and therefore the desirable state of affairs was something in the past and not in the future now for our mentality this is hard to imagine because we tend to associate the idea of progress with an improved condition of things in the future not in the past but you can see that if you conceived of perfection in the past then if perfection is greater in the past then the authority of those more perfect people would be the authority you would look to to try and confirm your experiments so the wise old chaps um, were the ones who were right you didn't question authority you worked within that authority now the, the, the next point is an elaboration of this and that's that the authority of the church was the context within which scientific investigation was pursued um, and theology was known as the queen of the sciences that, uh, which implied that it was a science itself by one sort of definition or another and that it was the science which ruled over 
Yes, which ruled over other sciences and gave, it their, gave them their legitimacy. Third point is that actually salvation was the main point anyway and that, what, that the main purpose of human life was to attain salvation it was not material progress which was allied to technical side of science so that science would be secondary in interest to theology because theology was enabled you to attain salvation and salvation had to be the primary concern of you as a human being quite apart from which and as, as I'm sure you know the church had a monopoly of learning for very many hundred years and so everything would have to be filtered through that view nothing could, could, be, could exist independently of it um, Thomas Kempis perhaps typified it by saying that when you arrive at the judgment door God won't ask you what books you've read <laughs> it's your state of being <laughs> which matters not to book list that you come and say well I've read this and I've read that and I've read the next thing don't I qualify an examiner in a university asks you indirectly what books you've read and you get your diploma or your degree in the university for that sort of knowledge but you don't get a spiritual diploma just for having read a certain number of books fourth point um, this is a very interesting one I think is that however much observation went on in the middle ages the observation did not lead to the formulation of general laws in other words you go out and do your experiments but um, you didn't then deduce from those experiments a general law which would change the way in which you understood things if you think of Newton for a minute if you, if you were a middle ages Newton um, you would see the apple dropping and you would say to yourself well this is very interesting and, and I, can, I can measure something about I can perhaps do some experiments with, to do with the dropping of the apple and, and its uh, gravity or whatever um, but you wouldn't suddenly think ah the moon is also dropping and you wouldn't then achieve um, or, or arrive at a formulation of a general law within which your experiment would take on a different complexion the general laws were accepted in other words as being the, 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 the scheme already laid down by the church and moreover up until Galileo's time there weren't any very great advances in instrumentation either just think of the avenues opened up by um, the microscope and the telescope and as soon as you get those sort of instruments of that power you've got to start making some interesting discoveries and then you may go on to formulation of general laws so these are two factors which prevented much progress from being made I'd just like to mention briefly that, that, it, that in certain areas of the Renaissance you had a, a, a revival of the Platonic view in Pico della Mirandola for instance and other scholars of the, of the Renaissance who had, a, who had a who formulated what was known as the Hermetic philosophy where the principal ideas were the chain of being um, the microcosm the macrocosm and <coughs> the importance of mathematical harmonies um, and this rather abstract conception of mathematics but I will come back to mathematics in a different sense this also incidentally the Platonic uh, Hermetic view is one which um, has reincarnation as one of its premises and this was something of course not countenanced by 
the Western Church at the time. And this whole, this whole stream, Pythagoras, Plato, the immortality of the soul, although it fed into and influenced Christian theology, it didn't produce the full-blown idea of the, uh, of the, the cycles of incarnation, the boarding school idea that um, Sue was talking about, or indeed the cave or the descent into matter. Now I'd like to go on to the various scientific advances which have borne in on religion and had an effect on it. The first important one, of course, is, is, is Copernicus. And we talk about various sorts of revolution in science, don't we? We talk about the Copernican revolution, the Cartesian revolution, the Newtonian revolution, the Darwinian revolution, the Freudian revolution. The revolution is literally a turning round and looking at things from a different angle. It's not always appreciated that the main thing that Copernicus got right, in inverted commas, was, the, was heliocentrism, was putting the sun at the center of the universe. He still thought that the heavenly bodies moved around in circles. Uh, he hadn't, he, it was not him who, who arrived at the idea of ellipses. And he still thought, broadly speaking, the stars were at a uniform distance from the earth. It was left to other people to discover that these, this wasn't the case. A follower of Copernicus uh, was Giordano Bruno, um, who also, uh, he, he, he read a lot himself, which was not derived from Copernicus at all. And I'm sure you know that, that he was burnt at the stake in 1600, and he represents one of the focal points of conflict between science and religion, or that's or very, very broadly speaking, I'm using the terms a bit loosely there. But he denied the idea of particular providence and he therefore denied the possibility of miracles intervening and of the efficacy of prayer because all of these imply a providence which takes an active part which is actively concerned with human beings now I'd like you to make mental note of this, this, this point about providence because it's one of the issues which fundamentally divides even now science from religion in that if you, have, if you have a science based on impersonal laws then the idea of intervention in those laws as you see the order of the world is absolutely uh, uh, unthinkable um, it just doesn't happen and if it's, if it's an apparent intervention it means that your theory about the law is not complete enough the theory would need me to be revised in order to make sure that this kind of intervention didn't happen I think that, and this applies to this book here, this man who wrote this is called Hanbury Brown, it's called The Wisdom of Science, it's relevant to culture and religion. It's got lots of interesting illustrations. It's very wittily written, uh, it's clearly written, um, and he's, he's got a, a very sharp wit, um, which I'll illustrate at, um, at a later stage. And there are all sorts of things to disagree with at the end, when he has a chapter called The Religious Dimension of Science, the Enlightenment of Belief and they, there, are, there are many slightly hairy ideas which come through here which need discussion but the main point here is that he's an astronomer and that if you conceive of the universe in terms of the size or if you, if you conceive in astronomical terms and you take on board the number of galaxies and the number of stars and the size of space and so on and so forth it's impossible to imagine just looking outwards like that 
that, that there could be any kind of God intervening in anything. It, the process is simply too large. What they ignore, of course, is the dimension of consciousness within. And they also ignore, and this I think is, another, is, another, is a very uh, important point, now, the possibility of intermediary forms, this is another discussion point, intermediary forms of intelligence being the way in which um, miracles in inverted commas or answers to prayer in inverted commas occur. The, so the, the, the split has occurred because people conceive of God on the one hand and our trivial little lives on the other. And they see the disproportion between the, this astronomical idea of God and the, 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 our lives on the other is so great that any kind of personal intervention given that kind of picture of the world is simply inconceivable. And so this is, the, the, the idea of providence is one which Hanbury Brown recommends we should ditch um, in uh, the light of this, the modern scientific world view. But, as Sue was saying, if you take the view that nothing happens by chance, then you, you, you're actually saying that providence, in inverted commas, is perpetually influencing thoughts and feelings and actions of human beings. But that providence needn't necessarily be seen as the god of the astronomers, but can be seen as the, as, as the influence of many myriad intermediary intelligences for one, for in one direction or the other. So I just leave you that, that seed to to, to develop a little, and we can, we can come back to it at a later stage, this idea of providence. The next advance was made by Kepler, who, who had a, some theory of gravitation, some theory of the tides and the moon, and who realized that the planets moved in ellipses uh, and not in circles. This is a big blow, um, because um, it meant that the, the heavenly bodies didn't move in the perfect form, didn't move in the perfect circle. And therefore, there was an, imp there was an imp it, was, it was imputing imperfection to what was, what was previously considered perfect. That's an attack on the idea of perfection. It's very important to remember, and one of the reasons I'm, I'm going through some of these points, is it, it's important to remember what the religious attitude of these scientists was. Kepler um, felt that his scientific discoveries revealed the greatness of the Creator. And Kepler was, was uh, more of a Platonic uh, philosopher. He, was, he, was, uh, he followed that tradition rather slightly more than the Aristotelian side of things. But in this book here, there, there, is, there is actually a prayer um, by Kepler, um, which I won't read, but which, it, which gives you an idea um, of the deep piety and faith of, of Kepler, deep mystical faith. This book, incidentally, is called The Metaphysical Foundations of Modern Science, and it's by E. A. Burt with two T's and it, 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 in this whole area it's, it's compulsory reading I, I found it in a second hand bookshop in Plymouth um, but it, it had it's, it's, fa it's fascinating in giving you the, the philosophical background the next great figure and this, he is a particularly important one for the whole question of science and religion is Galileo the first thing that Galileo did wrong from the church's point of view, is he discovered a new star. And this is extremely embarrassing. A new, a new what? A new star. Star? Star. S-T-A-R. Star. Yes. And if the, if the heavens were, were, were perfect and unchanging and eternal, 
then new stars shouldn't appear. <laughs> and, and the fact that he discovered a new star meant that something had changed in the heavens and, and it was um, therefore an attack on the idea of the eternal perfect sphere so he, what he does effectively is he blasts the distinction between and this, this is, this is um, what happens with the ellipse as well the distinction between um, the celestial and the terrestrial that I was, making, that I was drawing before the celestial with its perfect perfection, its eternity and so on and the terrestrial with its, uh, its changing, its flux and its imperfection and you were really saying, well one is actually like the other and so this whole, this whole edifice built up of distinguishing one and the other starts to collapse and I'm sure you know um, the story of his, his um, use of the telescope and his discovery in the phases of Venus and the moons of Jupiter and his bringing before um, the uh, Inquisition where he was vehemently suspected of holding heretical um, doctrines. The more important thing though with Galileo is to look at, at the elements which he introduced into thought which have had a permanent influence. Now the first thing is that he um, brought in the whole idea very thoroughly of mathematical demonstration and the influence of mathematics and thereby quantification on the way science has been done has been absolutely central. He was not using a priori scholastic logic to prove his point like St. Thomas Aquinas. Uh, he was using observation and the mathematical measurement of that observation. So the logic was no longer applied to the authority, the ancient authority, it was applied to uh, observation and experiment. The next thing he thought was that nature is orderly and the laws of nature are inexorable and immutable. The idea that, that um, therefore, that you can't have this intervention or this, this miracle. Could you repeat that? Yes. The idea, that, that this next idea he brought out was the idea of immutable natural law unchangeable natural law mathematical natural law which just has to operate in certain ways it can't be suspended you can't climb the leading tower of Pisa and, and drop out a stone and expect it not to fall these are the he, he, a lot of his experiments of course were concerned with mechanics and with experiments where the same thing happened time after time after time thus suggesting an absolutely immutable law so, okay the, the math, using maths leads to the quantitative aspects of things this has been absolutely fundamental measurement, measuring things but one has to remember quantification itself is an abstraction you abstract it from you can say well uh, what I'd like to do is measure this pencil and you, you, you measure the pencil you say well it's such and so many, um, so many inches long you've discovered something about the pencil but you certainly haven't discovered everything about it just by measuring it or many other processes which need to take place the mathematics also leads to, the, to absolute certainty or it's supposed to lead to absolute certainty of scientific knowledge now you can see that actually it's the mathematics itself which brings in the element of certainty 
and that it, what is applied to math doesn't necessarily have to have the same degree of certainty as the maths itself. The maths is certain by definition, it's tautological, much of it. Well, it's worked out in tautologies, one of Russell's points. So that the maths can be certain without the knowledge being derived from it, being uh, certain to the same degree. Uh, perhaps the most important um, distinction introduced by Galileo was the distinction between what he called primary and secondary qualities. And the, pri the primary quality is something like number, figure, magnitude, position, motion, something absolutely definite which can be measured. And this he called knowledge, something which he said was absolute, objective, immutable, mathematical. This was knowledge. A secondary quality, he said, was relative and subjective and depended on your senses. So that a, the, a smell of something, for instance, or anything derived from the senses, that would be a secondary quality, not a primary quality. You can't measure smell. But you could measure something, or part of something, which was emitting a smell. And this was simply opinion. Now what you can see, if you think about it here, is that knowledge is defined as what is mathematical um, and uh, objective in inverted commas and doesn't change. Opinion is defined as what we are conscious of. So that consciousness, which is what's so important about the confluence of science and religion, is relegated to a secondary position. That, that anything we understand through the senses is secondary. And it's what is outside all this that is primary. And so what effectively happened here is that man uh, was banished from nature through this process of objectification. Man was removed from nature. And man, of course, is not suited, suited to mathematical study. Or you can only, you can only measure certain things about man, but you, wouldn't, you, you couldn't say, well, I know a man, or I know a woman, simply by measuring them. This would, this would only give you a very partial view of a part of them. So that consciousness was really a bundle of secondary qualities, the, the senses that we have, and was not really in the real world, which is the mathematical world, the measurable world. And it just repeat the primary qualities? Prim primary qualities were things, wh were things which were ab objective and immutable and mathematical, such as number, magnitude, position, and motion. These are things which could be, which could be objectively measured. Secondary qualities were consciousness, really. And the next thing that he did was to remove the idea of final purpose or final causality as a principle of explanation. I'll just say what I mean by that. That Galen, as I was saying before, talked about the way, it, the, the reason why things existed. Why does man exist? Why does the universe exist? The universe in the medieval idea was supposed to exist for the benefit of man. Why does man exist in order to attain salvation? Wholeness. What Galileo did was he removed this whole question of why uh, and just concentrated on how. How it came about. And this is what's known by Aristotle as efficient causation. How things happen. 
why they happened was not considered to be a scientific question anymore. That was a metaphysical question. And, so, and this goes right the way down, it's very, very central to the whole problem of the science and religion, um, is eliminating the idea of purpose from scientific analysis. Um, and those of you who know the uh, book by Jacques Monod, Chance and Necessity, he says that the idea of purpose has no place in science. He does admit, though, that that idea, that there should be no idea of purpose in science, is not itself scientific. <laughs> it can't be. And it's very, that's a very important point to remember. But then he sort of forgets about that and gets on with the job, as it were. God, by Descartes, was simply the first efficient cause, i.e., God was the chap who set it all in motion, and then once he set it all in motion, it all happened by itself. You didn't need any more intervention by God after he'd set it all in motion. So he wound it up, if you like, and once it started going, he didn't need to do anything, it just was running along or down entropy, as the case may be. So the causality, the cause and effect idea, was now in the atoms and not in God. And what this, what this led to, and this is also extremely important, is the idea of the universe as self-contained, closed, mathematical machine. Self-contained because you had a loop and everything happened within this loop, and it was closed because, that's really another way of saying self-contained, and uh, the, the mathematical, because this is the way you measured it, it was a machine because it, con it just continued as, as, you'd, as you'd started it up. Uh, very briefly, Descartes introduced the idea of the dualism, separating sharp distinction between mind on the one hand and matter on the other. He also had a mechanical idea of bodies. He said bodies were machines, very important too. And animals were automata. And the, the human body was a machine. Uh, and of course the machine is inorganic. And the model he used was the model of the clock, the clockmaker. This was taken on by Newton. And the other thing he did was he said, well, the way we get to know things is by dividing them into little pieces and analyzing them. And if we can understand the little pieces and add them all together again, we can understand the whole thing. It, it reminds one of the, the pursuit of um, anatomical knowledge through corpses. And if you, if, you, if you dissect a corpse, have you really understood what life's about? Well, of course, the, I mean, you've, got, you've understood the parts well, the whole is a living system which is not operating in the same way as it did. And to extrapolate the knowledge that you get from, an, from a dead corpse anatomy uh, to the way that things occur in living systems um, is illogical. In the 1660s, we had the foundation of the Royal Society in London, and this was perceived as slightly ridiculous um, by um, the people of the time. It's interesting that in the history of the Royal Society in 1667, Thomas Spratt regrets that they're being attacked from both angles. There's a satire against scientists, and the scientist says this, I content myself with the speculative part of swimming. I care not for the practic. I seldom bring anything to use. It is not my way. Knowledge is my ultimate end. And so Sir Nicholas learns to swim by imitating a frog, but he does it on a table because he says he hates water. <laughs> um, 
uh, the, the idea here, um, of course, is that, is that science was abstract and irrelevant, and this, this idea hasn't lasted very long. I also just to mention Bacon very quickly here as well. His idea of, of science was to be allied to material progress and to produce power and control. Newton, as you know, invented theories of gravitation and motion. His idea uh, of, of, of the clockmaker, the watchmaker, um, was the one he had of, of God. Newton's religion, many of you may know that Newton wrote much more on theology and alchemy than he did on science. And in this book, um, you will find prayers by Newton and theology by Newton, which shows that religion was absolutely central to Newton's view. But, and this is an interesting thing, uh, he kept, kept the public rather in the dark about his alchemical researches. Um, and so he effectively split off his public persona as a great scientist from his private persona as a, an alchemist and a man of deep faith. And this sort of public embarrassment has continued in science ever since, I think. <laughs> a little bit about Kant, the German philosopher. The most important point he made, which comes out in modern physics again, was that space, time and causality are necessary constructs through which we, perce we, we perceive reality. That without using space, time and causality, we can't understand anything or express anything in the world. And this begins to bring back into play the whole idea of consciousness, I think, um, and the secondary qualities thrown out by Galileo. Then we have Darwin. Darwin was extremely unpopular with theologians, as I'm sure you know, and T.H. Huxley was even less popular because it was T.H. Huxley who called himself <laughs> Darwin's bulldog, um, who, really, who really took the, the thick end of the opposition. What we're talking about here is evolution v. creation. That was the original debate, anyway. And what he was, was criticising um, was what's known in philosophy as the argument from design and teleology. Telos is go in Greek, so teleology is the idea of, of life having a purpose. And he was saying that chance, um, or rather, he was saying that natural selection uh, and random mutation were sufficient to explain the process of evolution. That's a slightly inaccurate statement because this was more what Darwin's... Darwin himself was very uneasy about um, the relationship between his views and religion. The sort of debate that um, went on was the man and animals debate, for instance. Is man simply an animal? And one of them was a delightful cartoon in here which says that I am not a... I, I didn't evolve... I am a born-again homo anthropophagus or something like that. Uh, he, I don't know if I can find it, but he's going along with a, a great um, club behind his back um, saying that he didn't evolve and that he was born straight like that. The ne next debate, very difficult to, if men evolved from animals, then at what point did man have a soul or acquire a soul? and great glee was had and, and uh, a lot of mileage had by Bertrand Russell out of this particular question. The next question is biblical criticism and time scale, the role of geology 
Um, there was the world created in 4004 BC, and of course evolution suggested it couldn't possibly have been. And its final feature was that consciousness, these secondary qualities and so on, were simply epiphenomena, byproducts of material beings. So that in the same way as steam is a byproduct of boiling water, consciousness was reckoned to be a byproduct of the brain, a sort of excrescence of the brain. Now just think for a moment of the areas in which science has taken away from the religious view of the world. And these sweep right the way across. Creation and evolution, animal and man, geography, flat earth and so on, astronomy, which we've been talking about, geology, archaeology, anthropology, comparative study of human societies, versus the fall, meteorology, the theory that the weather was produced by spirits of various sorts, magic, alchemy. Is this 15, 15 minutes or half? Half, please. Okay. Yeah. Um, miracles, uh, demonic possession, and insanity, and <laughs> miracles in medicine. Um, the, the, the hope is that there was a whole theory of, of um, a disease based on sin. And, and um, medicine, of course, finds that, some, that not many diseases seem to be related to sin, unless you take sin as bad thought. I didn't want to go down these, er these avenues. They're all fascinating. I just wanted to mention them so you get an idea of the scope of the issues. And, of course, the divine oracle versus higher criticism of, of texts. Now, some people think that this, is, this points to a sort of gaps hypothesis, that science has filled in an awful lot of gaps that religion used to fill out, and that soon rational scientific views will supplant all the superstitious religious ones. And this is very much the view of 19th century uh, writers. And there is what's known as a promissory materialism, which says that seeing as science has explained so much in physical terms so far, then it's pretty likely, in fact almost certain in brackets, that science will explain everything in physical terms in the end. Now it's important to see that's an act of faith. It's not, it's not something you can necessarily say logically, but it is a view which is held. Just a few points about the limits of science before I go on to religion and the confluence. Of course, it's not, it's not a scientific truth to yeah. say that only scientific truths are true. That's a piece of metaphysics. Science measures. If you take a two-inch net and you draft it through the ocean, as Eddington pointed out, then of course you will find, when you drag it up, that there aren't any fish smaller than two inches, because that's the size of your net. If you then said that no fish smaller than two inches exist, you would simply be showing up the shortcomings of your methodology. <laughs> so that in a sense, the kind of net you use determines the sort of fish you catch. And it's then illogical to say that only fish in my net exist. There aren't any other kinds of fish. Of course, we now know that consciousness is a factor um, so far as relativity and quantum theory is concerned. And the other thing we know is that knowledge 
scientific knowledge is tentative. It consists of making hypotheses which may or may not prove right, but which are useful up to a point. Now, so far as religion is concerned, make a few general remarks to begin with. There has been a recognizable decline in the, in the influence of official religion, but the spirit, as I'm sure you'll all agree, is very much alive, but not uh, necessarily within the traditional forms. A few general remarks um, from other people. Stondahl said, Relig all religions are founded on the fear of the many and the cleverness of the few. Um, <laughs> discuss. I won't make any remarks about this, but you, I think will be, this will suggest a few thoughts to you. Swift, I think this is a brilliant one, we have just enough religion to make us hate, but not enough to make us love one another. <laughs> truer in his day than now but there, there are, you can see there are plenty of instances in which this is true today as well Dean Ng religion is caught not taught <laughs> suggesting uh, the dimension of the heart yeah you might suppose that we ought to put philosophy and religion and art into slightly separate spheres so that philosophy we say concerned with the head, religion with the heart, and creativity and action, so on, with the will. This is another way of looking at things. Or with Vinoba Bhav, um, one of the great Indian sages, um, this century follower of Gandhi and one of the teachers of Satish Kumar, he says that science provides the accelerator and religion the rudder. Uh, also interesting. Reminds me of the story in, in um, uh, Abraham Maslow, and he said that uh, a an airline pilot radioed back, and he said, "I'm lost, but I'm making record time." <laughs> Is this civil? Are we as a civilization making record time? <laughs> we're lost. We don't know where we're supposed to be going. <laughs> Attitudes to science and from between science and religion, uh, and these I will deal with uh, rather briefly. Uh, the first, I'll just go through them first. First would be uh, militant atheism, second agnosticism, third creationism, fourth complementarity, and the fifth the mystical side of things. Militant atheism. Science has got the whole truth. There's no hard evidence of the divine, no evidence of parapsychology, um, no evidence that anything uh, precognition and stuff takes place this of course is the sort of statement made by people who know absolutely nothing about any of the things they're talking about um, so that most people who say this simply don't know what they're talking about their view is positivist saying that only scientific truth is true and reductionist saying that only things that can be explained in physical terms are real explanations everything else is a pseudo um, explanation you can, uh, you can see this running through other areas as well, mentioned briefly. Freud, uh, his attitude to religion, his book was called The Future of an Illusion, speaks for itself. It was simply wish fulfillment, projection of the father, an immature thing, that attitude that humanity would soon grow out of. Marx, Opium of the People, I'm sure you know this, the sire of the oppressed. Again, religion was an illusion, it simply propped up the state and French existentialism, behaviorism, 
the idea that uh, human beings are just complex reflex automata and the idea that I mentioned of the great biologist um, Jacques Monod with his chance and necessity these sort, this sort of militant atheism now the twain shall meet the next possibility is ag agnosticism saying well we don't really know and this was term coined by uh, Leslie Stephen father of Virginia Woolf in the 1860s and the most famous agnostic of the 19th century was T.H. Huxley uh, it usually ignores consciousness the third is the sorry I'm being a bit fast here because I do want to get on to the, the actual confluence before we conflow ourselves into coffee <laughs> the third is the creationist view fundamentalist view the Bible certain um, and the, the, the inspiration of the Bible is literal and what we're trying to do is to reconcile what happened in the Bible with what, with what we can see around us and there's a, there's a description in here for instance of a creationist who said that the speed of light must have been something like 4,000 times the uh, speed it is now in 4004 BC and if you assume that um, then you can, you can imagine creation occurring within a very short period of time but I won't go into that argument we've got the answer all the rest of you are damned I'm sorry um, that is the, the general fundamentalist view uh, the fourth view you could have is the compartmentalist or the complementarist now these are two things of the same sort they are you could on the one hand they are scientific priests or religious scientists of which there are many and, and so to talk about the existence of God is to create a philosophical abstraction which misuses the term if God is existence then everything which exists is a manifestation of God so science is a manifestation of God and so is religion then the fifthly the, the mystical side and this is where the, the greatest confluence is taking place um, I think and here we in the traditional religion we can think of figures like Nicholas of Cusa um, and particularly Eckhart uh, who of course was, was um, um, disapproved of thoroughly um, by um, the church of his time but, but is one of the most profound thinkers and mystics of all time this is the one of the great books which I thoroughly recommend uh, by René Weber you can look at it afterwards called Dialogues with Scientists and Sages The Search for Unity that's the key The Search for Unity um, so to search for oneness and wholeness underlying form, appearance and the many it's one of the old philosophical questions isn't it the relationship between the one and the many um, between appearance and reality and the materialist is really saying well appearance is reality and more or less there's not only the outer empiricism of science there's also the inner empiricism of consciousness where you can apply some sorts of qualitative analysis to conscious processes and there's a link in the participation process outside and inside with the observer the observer is linked to the outside process and you are of course intimately participating in any inner process um, that is going on and so this is the real area I think of confluence so the confluence to me is between more between science and particularly physics and mysticism than it is between science and theology theology being the construct and the outer dogmatic form of the religion and both of them 
come up against the wonder and mystery of life. Einstein talked about this, the mysterious. And the ineffable mystical experience cannot be expressed in words. Um, and this, the, the mystery, you are in the mystery, you are the mystery. And to express the mystery in words is to pour the infinite into a vase. And the danger is to look at the shape of the vase and say, well, that's the real thing, the shape of the word, rather than the experience which is poured into the vase. Now, what are the factors, which are the principal factors of confluence? What I've done here is I've, I've, I've listed uh, seven possible factors here. Factors of what? Confluence. Confluence. Yes. And I'll just list them first and then say a little more about each of them. One is, is the influence from the East. Uh, second is the approach of um, William James and Sir Alistair Hardy. The third is psychology, particularly transpersonal psychology. The fourth is meditation. Fifth, reincarnation research. Sixth, near-death experiences. And the seventh, the area of mysticism and science. So, Eastern influences, the ideas here, the principal ideas are emphasis on consciousness, meditation, chakra system, if you're looking in physiological terms, i.e. The, 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 um, the existential emphasis on experience, on conscious experience, but absolutely at the center um, of Eastern religious disciplines. This, we've, this has come to us through scholars, Schopenhauer, Max Müller, Mirza Iliada, Houston Smith, Aldous Huxley, Radhakrishnan, Thomas Merton, Mount Sack Thomas Merton. Oh, it's come through yogis. Vivekananda, that was the first one to come to the West, I think, um, who was a disciple of Ramakrishna. Yogananda has had enormous influence, um, I'm sure, and some people, some people who are here. Maharishi. Ramana Maharshi, Paul Brunton, some of you may have read. Um, then the second area, the um, researches of, um, and work of William James, Varieties of Religious Experience, um, when he talks about religion as the feelings, acts and experiences of individual people in their solitude, so far as they apprehend themselves to stand in relation to whatever they may consider the divine. And, and if you have never read the varieties of religious experience, then sometime in the next two years, I recommend you make time for it, not only because of its profound insight, it's also extremely well written and wittily pre presented. Hardy's work has been more with the uh, religious experience research uh, unit. Now the Alistair Hardy Research Centre and his books such as um, The Biology of God and The Spiritual Nature of Man and these are this, these, and he's left behind a, a legacy of um, <coughs> considerable research to be pursued. In psychology a few names will um, demonstrate what I'm putting across here. Jung um, his work on psychology of religion talking about the spiritual problem of modern man, the presuppositions that he analysed of, of outlook. Viktor Frankl, and some of you may know, Man's Search for Meaning, 
his um, philosophy derived from his um, sufferings in Auschwitz. Abraham Maslow with his hierarchy of needs, his peak experience, his, his work on values, his work on, on, on human beings who are functioning healthily. Uh, Stanislav Grof, um, his work on psychedelics and states of consciousness sailing close to the wind in some parts, closer in California than in this country, I think. And Asa Jolie with his uh, psychosynthesis. Fourthly, the meditative techniques, TM, Raj Yoga, um, breathing techniques, mantras, huge proliferation of techniques and definitions of meditation. I think if you asked everybody in this room what they meant by meditation, you'd get as many different answers as there were people in the room, nearly. But the point is that by experiencing meditation, you can touch into this silence, this peace, this light, this calm, and realize that until you still your mind, the still small voice of God cannot speak. You jam to the receiving station by all the trivial noise, or the white noise that uh, is going through your mind. Fifth area, the research into reincarnation with Ian Stevenson and the books by Head and Cranston, the regression therapy and so on. And this is a metaphysical idea which has come from the East, but which is, which is finding some scientific confirmation the researches of Ian Stevenson. So I regard this as another factor in the confluence of science and religion. Now the near-death experience, about which I could give you another hour, you know, quite easily, uh, and other relevant parapsychological um, phenomena, the out-of-body experience, for instance, with the separate sense of the I, of I existing apart from the physical body, the transcendental side of the near-death experience with the mystical uh, oneness of light and love and peace and joy and life. This is a religious dimension to the near-death experience. But it happens within the context, many, in many cases, of scientific medicine. Hence, I regard this as a factor of the, the confluence um, between science and religion. And the review experience of seeing all your thoughts and feelings and the effect of these thoughts and feelings on other people, this is a, a connection of the near-death experience with religion. And then seventhly, um, the, the mystical stroke scientific confluence per se, and we've, m many people have mentioned Teilhard de Chardin, um, who's obviously a, 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 um, a pioneer in this field, although not everybody, not all the scientists agree with his science, and not all the people, um, religious people, agree with his religion either. But the names, the names um, and here, many of them are in this book, here, Capra, Bohm, Sheldrake, Prigogine, Ken Wilbur, I don't, know, I, don't, I don't know how many of you have read any of Ken Wilber's work, but he's um, quite brilliant. Although he reckons that Darfree John um, has got even more to say than he has. Uh, and Darfree John is certainly worth um, studying in this um, context. He's written a remarkable book called The Transmission of Doubt, which is a criticism of science, transmitting doubt. And the doubt, of course, is the Cartesian sceptical attitude of doubting everything except your own existence. In physics, Einstein, Heisenberg, Jeans, Schrodinger, Eddington, these are the sort of names. Um, and another book, um, for those of you who've got the stamina, is Ken Wilber edited Quantum Questions, 
Um, some of you may have seen this. It's mystical writings of the great physicists. Sorry, quantum, quantum questions. The spectrum of consciousness. But that's not one I just mentioned, though. Is that what you wanted? No, the first one. Uh, the, uh, the weather, this one. No, you've given me the two things. Right. The quantum question and the spectrum of consciousness. Right. Okay, there are others as well, but um, Up from Eden, the Upland Project, um, No Boundary. No Boundary. Yes. So what, what, this, what we're talking about here is the search for unity. We're looking for a grand unified theory, gut as they say, of not only within science, but to embrace human experience. We're looking for something which is both qualitative and quantitative which doesn't say that all the, world, the real world is, is what can be measured or the real world is what can't be measured. We're looking for meaning and connectedness and beauty and elegance. If you, if you read Russell on maths, you'll find that he talks about the beauty and elegance um, of mathematics. And many people talk about the beauty and elegance of the theory. And, and they, they regard it as extremely important um, that the theory should be elegant and, and aesthetic and they tend to think that it must be right if it's elegant. So thus, thus um, suggesting there is some relationship between beauty and truth. It's not, it's not a logical one necessarily. So it's the search for unity, as I say, which is at the heart of this. And it's the, fact, it's the belief that unity is both discoverable by the intellect and experienceable by the heart. Um, so that we can search for unity here, search for unity here, and putting the unity into action through our creative will. It's a unification of the knower and the known. Uh, and this suggests new epistemology in, in philosophy, i.e. the theory of knowledge, um, that we must give proper status to um, the mystical experience where the, the knower and the known are fused. You see, the positivist would say, well, that's not knowledge at all. Uh, because, it, because you can't prove it. Um, and you, can't, you say you can't express it, but you do still, you try to express it. But it's not knowledge, because for, for proper knowledge, there has to be this separation between the knower uh, and the known. Um, and one of the keys to this whole mystical scientific confluence is the idea of interdependence, which we'll be talking about this afternoon with the, the Gaia um, hypothesis and um, the parallel with ecology and interdependence also means responsibility well finally what, what are the prospects here for um, this confluence of science and religion well I would say that the factors I've listed the psychology and meditation and so on and their medical applications for instance I think that they are becoming more and more predominant and um, I don't expect there to be a retreat um, of these various factors that I've been talking about. I think it's from groups forming and conferences occurring like this, it's obvious that people are interested in these themes and, and they, they, want, they want to pursue them. The ideas are, are, are spreading. Um, there is this search for meaning. They, I would expect these insights to be applied more broadly um, in holistic medicine and from a philosophical point of view um, we might try to get closer to the idea of tentative hypotheses subject to refinement um, in our approach to religious experience 
And in this, this is one of the lines taken by Peter Leggett and Max Payne in their book, A Forgotten Truth. Again, some of you, some of you may have seen this. Where they, they say, well, the science consists of collecting data, forming hypotheses, and testing these hypotheses. And by looking at the essence of the world religions, they build up a view of the world um, about the nature of God and the purpose of life and so on. Um, which is consistent with the essence of all these world religions in the same way as scientific hypotheses are consistent with the data um, which are collected. What, we, what, we're, what we're trying to move towards is the universal and essential in the experience of religion um, and universality, unity uh, are key words in our day in our time and they will be um, during my lifetime and beyond the danger here uh, is of becoming what Swift would call an anything Aryan an anything Aryan <laughs> anything goes in other words that your spiritual view really has no content at all um, and you're so tolerant um, that you, you um, embrace not just paradoxes but contradictions and, and that uh, you think well all that really matters um, in, in, so in the religious context is the social and ethical side and there, this, is, this has been a great trend within um, orthodox religion that, you know, it's, uh, what I'd like to see is people getting out there and doing the charitable work but what about the being behind all this so that we need, we need to discover this very deep being and center within in order to enable us to bring the right quality to this social and ethical work, to this service. Because the service, Tagore said, for instance, that um, a person that he knew um, was so busy doing good that they didn't have time to be good. <laughs> <laughs> and this can become compulsive, can't it? Um, where, where you don't allow yourself the inner space to produce real integration and flow in your service and some, uh, the parallel with this um, in, relig in metaphysical terms is to take the social um, side of or, 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 sorry, in, in scientific terms is simply to look at the, the applications of science without looking at the motivation and being as it were behind science and I'd just like to finish by saying that I think that the scientists who reckon that positivism and positivistic science will eventually swallow up all these crucial questions are absolutely wrong. Um, that um, the number of the, 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 the areas which have already been taken over in inverted commas by science are probably <coughs> almost complete. I mean, it's a very dangerous thing to say. And that indeed in some respects, in medicine for instance, they, the, the positivist element in medicine has gone too far and we're going to have to go back to finding the ecological approach of Hippocrates and incorporate that um, within the scientific and medical approach I think that the key is exploration exploration into God and if we can have this spirit of exploration, of openness exploring the inner realms exploring the outer realms and, and comparing notes and trying to arrive at an essential and universal formulation um, of our experiences exploring the imminent exploring the transcendent exploring quality and quantity 
um, encountering the mystery within and the mystery without then we will be moving with <coughs> the, the spirit which is coming into our time which is the, the Holy Spirit the, in the broader sense of the term um, the, the Holy Spirit is a spirit to things it's not a form it's a quality which infuses itself into all sorts of activities and beings and, and to, into, into everyone but it doesn't prescribe this is the only way of doing it it's the quality of love and peace and joy which needs to be brought into our activities which is the activity of the Holy Spirit it's not a, it's not a particular activity which is prescribed it's a quality of activity um, which um, it is concentrating on and this I think should lead us towards further healing and growth in both the scientific and religious sphere um, with the twin themes which, which I feel are absolutely central of emphasis on unity um, and universality on the one hand and emphasis on responsibility personal responsibility within the context of this interdependence um, this unity this universality this tendency towards God thank you